How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sci-Fi Podcast, episode 142. There we go. Nailed it, Zeke. Nailed it. First try. <laughs> First go. Yes. How you doing, Jake? Yeah, I'm tired. Tired. <laughs> so, is that news to anyone? I think, uh, I think we we, always... it'll be interesting to keep co- score on uh, how many times we start the show. How many episodes? Tired. I'm tired. I'm sleepy. It's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of become a bit of our mantra. Yeah, I, I like it because um, you know no one else is tired in the world. It's just us. N- no, no. That's how that's how er, that's how the world works, Jake. Everyone needs to tell each other how they feel. Yeah, and how their feelings are so important. Oh, oh, starting uh, off strong. I like ca- it. Coming in, coming in with some <laughs> spice. Uh, I Jake, love have you, it. Have you got me some trivia? I do. I have some trivia <clears throat> for the film of the week called Lamb, which you, you may have noticed. It's a little little continuation from last week's pig. It's true. Of course. So I noticed something watching at the very beginning of the film and then after we walked out of the credits. I was like, I didn't see the A24 logo, mm-hmm. which I was interesting because that's why a lot of people pay attention to this film specifically because of A24's involvement. Of course. Now, does it have A24 vibes? Of course it does. But guys, so it's a distribution company. Let's chill out for a minute. <laughs> All right. They don't make these things, all right? They they distribute them. That's how it works. But it's true. I was curious, I was like, why wasn't the A twenty four logo shown up? Maybe they only distributed it in the United States. So I I did a little research, and it, it turns out that is true. That is true. A twenty four did the U.S. distribution, mm-hmm. but many other companies did distributions for many other countries. Which you know, I, I think it's a nice reminder to people that localization is it's a big deal. You know, trying to get different films in different countries with different logos at the start and different subtitles for different na- nationalities, all of that jazz. But upon my research, I found out just how many were involved. I'm going to name just a few okay. of the companies involved sure. in the distribution of Lamb. So, of course, you have A24 for the US. You have Artcam for the Czech Republic. You have The Jokers for France. You have Film Copy for Switzerland. You have ASKF. So, Slovakia, Slovakia, Slovakia. There's an L-O in there. I'm going to get the L's all mixed up. Uh, Coach Films for Germany. Uh, Gutek Film for Portland. Vertigo for Hungary. Film Laden for Austria. And a little more familiar, maybe with us, uh, Moby, who did the distribution for Turkey, India, the UK, Ireland, and all of Latin America, excluding Mexico. So just a little hint to like how many companies have got you know fingers in pies in regards to getting this film out there in the world. So, uh, but it was quite interesting. There was actually a lot of at the start of the film. There's a lot yes! of names. That's a good point. There was quite a collection. Pop, 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 pop. Yeah. Um. So that doesn't surprise me that yeah. um that you know there's that many fingers in the yeah. the film's pie. <laughs> exactly. Well, do you have a do you have a, a slightly less nonsensical fact for me, Zeke? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's go with that. Um, <laughs> so, unfortunately, obviously, with this film's kind of um, obscurity, mm, I would say sure. uh, it, it's not got many many trivia facts. However, there is one on mm. uh, IMDb. Uh, oh, yeah. is the first film where Numi Rapace. Speaks in Icelandic, a language she learned while living in Iceland as a child. Obviously, uh, Numi Rapace is the 
uh, female lead mm, of the two, um, and I imagine probably the bigger name out of the two. I almost said um, the titular character, but that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> She's on the poster. I mean, that's why I said that. Um, yeah, so... Um, that's interesting. It's a very intriguing film, because this is the first Icelandic film we've done also on the show. Is that actually... It would kind of make sense. Yeah, I guess Name so. another Icelandic film. I think... We didn't do this, but I've talked about it. A, way, a White White Day was an Icelandic film that came to Luna last year. I haven't heard anything about it since, but... It's very similar in tone, now I figure. But not, not the eerie, surrealistic nature of it. But in terms of being a cold land um like the environmental storytelling was very similar but that it's the only other film i can think of at the top of my head but we didn't cover that no not on, not on this show no no but it's a good film a white white day if you ever come across it zeke this film is a little too recent to be on the poster behind you the 1100 films you have to watch at least once in your lifetime would you put lamb on your poster. I'd put the first act on. Whoa. <laughs> uh, um, little tease. <laughs> little on. tease. Um, no, unfortunately not. That's fair enough. You see, I kind of struggled with this one too, and I actually kind of leaned toward yes. I was going to... Yeah. In, in the same... In the sense that... Yeah, and we're going to get into it, obviously, but I think, for me, if I'm going to write my 1100 films you must watch, they're not all going to be, you know, good fellas. No. They're not all going to be, like, anonymously good films. All, like, considered the best films. I'm going to put a lot of picks in there that explore the gamut of the cinematic scope. Mm -hmm. So a film like this, which we're going to talk about, by no means a perfect film. We've got a lot of things we want to discuss. Yes, definitely a lot to discuss. But there's enough in here for me to, to recommend people be like, you should, if you're a fan of cinema, you should watch this. For very specific reasons, and and we'll get into that later. But yeah, I would I would honestly tick yes to that question because of how obscure. Well, well, more. I feel like if you're a filmmaker, there's lots of stuff in this film that you can either appreciate or take away from. There's lessons to be learned in the filmmaking of this film, regardless of any uh, script issues we may yeah. or may not have with it. That's oh. all. That's where I'm leaning towards my yes. I think it's very fair. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a really valid point. I think sometimes, yeah, these these more obscure ones would make the list, despite the fact that yeah, that because of their pure uniqueness or what they're trying to do. Yeah, for sure. I would put the room on my list because of its sort of cultural significance in the film landscape. Not because it's a great film; it most certainly is not. Mm-hmm. But there's enough history and intrigue behind it. And the reaction sure, audiences have had. a fair yeah. example, absolutely. Like, that's where I lean on my list in terms of, like, cultural importance in a film. I yeah. I, my, I, my 1,100 favourites. <laughs> I'm purely selfish. No, no. Fair um, enough. Fair enough. Yeah. No, okay. Well, that's fair. Well, I guess we just slide on into the next part of our show. Oh. Jake, I've heard you've caught some stuff during the week. <laughs> who have who, who you been talking to, Zeke? <laughs> Yeah. You had dinner, apparently. Oh, no. Yes, I've seen some stuff in the last week. I caught... I'll mention this quickly because I caught it very recently. I caught The Guilty, which uh, we mentioned last week as coming to Netflix. The um, very ever-so-popular uh, collection of stories that we, we've seen. I've seen this idea done a few times now. The idea of a, a 911 operator having to, like, save the caller. Mm-hmm. 
and this is the latest in that series. This is from uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal involved. I mean, this one has a bit more of an intrigue in terms of the the behind the scenes nature of it because uh, the director actually had COVID while shooting this. So there's actually images you can find online of of him inside an isolated van with monitors surrounded, and they would basically mm-hmm. he would do his direction over Zoom to the cast and crew, which. Is actually fascinating. It was quite fascinating. Yeah. Well, especially in terms of a story that's all about telecommunication. I thought that was kind of a nifty thing. But, you know, I mean, before you have the uh, the Halle Berry version, The Call. Uh, this film is a remake of a 2018 film that's also called The Guilty, which I haven't seen. I imagine it's a lot better. Um, but it also reminds me of the short film I talked about, I think, last week. A Sister, which was nominated for an Oscar a couple of years ago, which I think is absolutely brilliant and is a very, very similar um, story to this in terms of you know the caller calling into nine one one and having to put on a facade and 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 through sort of just that back and forth dialogue the the operator has to figure out how to save this person mm-hmm. what situation they're in uh, so it does that it's funny because up front I thought the film was okay I enjoyed it I think it's going to be forgettable I thought Jack Gyllenhaal was good in it mm. I mean the problem is. What I love about a sister, and what I love about this idea, is the mundanity of something that most people haven't done as a job before. The nine one one operator, and like the the emotional strength you would have to 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 do a role like that, especially with like the flat delivery that you would need to do. You would have to remain calm. You have to keep the people calling you to keep calm. Um, there's a mundanity to it, and I like seeing that in this film for you know the brief moment we get it at the beginning of just like how silly some of the calls are and their responses and. Um, I like all that aspect of it. And again, that's what I think makes a sister so special is because of how unimportant it all is. But I think this film, it does a lot to try and make things more important than they actually are. For starters, the Jake Gyllenhaal character, I think his name's Joe. Um, he has a whole backstory. He has like flaws and issues that he has to deal with personally. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand kind of the point of adding that is so you relate to him as a character. character more, I, yeah. I had the exact opposite reaction of, I don't want to know any of this. Now, it all kind of ties in together and, like, the guilt that he has for things he's done in his past and how that relates to the situation he's dealing with on the phone. But I think the film spends way too much time focusing on that. There are, in, there are entire scenes where he's neglecting the phone and, like, calling, like, an ex-wife, for example, and they're having conversations about things that we as an audience don't know about because it's a driving question. Oh, what did this character do? Why is he going to court in a day? You know, what? these are all driving questions that... I'm sorry, if you're not going to answer them, then don't dedicate entire scenes of this film, which is about a tense situation he's mm. trying to deal with over the phone, dedicated to this thing we don't know about. And the film procrastinates so much with these scenes. And that really bugged me, because like, I don't care about that. I just want the actual situation. It's too much padding. Yeah, it, seriously, for a 90-minute film, there's a lot of padding. Mm. And I get like the way they tie it all up. like It's important to the story they're trying to tell. I mean, the title, The Guilty, like, you would have to call it something else if you got rid of this side plot, but I'm sorry, I didn't think the side plot was engaging or necessary in the slightest. I thought more than enough, just the, the mundanity of the job yeah. really spoke to me, and I thought that was really cool and, and super underutilized um, in this film. But you know what? It's fine. I think I gave it two and a half stars, which for me is like a, it's okay. I don't necessarily think you need to go see this film, but... Am I going to drop the brutal hammer down on it? <laughs> you feel? I I don't know. I, I I mean, I don't think it's a bad film. Okay. But, like, the direction it takes, I was so disinterested in 
what the film decided to spend its time on. Yeah, it sounds on. like the production context was more interesting. Yeah, it was, you. seriously. Yeah. And, like, I saw Jake Gyllenhaal do... It wasn't Conan, R.I.P. Conan's show. He, his show would be missed. He's still alive, of course. But um, oh, he did it for Jimmy Fallon, I think. Who's, okay. he, he's unbearable. But, like, his story was interesting, what he told on the show about communicating with his director mm. and, and how that all went down. So it was really interesting. And, again, I, I like the sort of meta commentary on the telecommunication side of his direction so but that has absolutely nothing to do with the film that you're going to log on to netflix to watch not really you know what i mean uh the other one i'll quickly mention is another round which i rewatched in the last week and uh it's still a great film you know, did you up it did you up no your... i didn't i sort of left it uh where i stood but i did because one of my big things with the film initially was it almost sidelines this uh plot that seems to be bubbling up at the beginning about um, teachers being forced to give kids like good grades so it mm. makes the school look better. I understand that's not what the film is trying to do at all. I understand yeah. it's trying to highlight Mads Mikkelsen's like unattentiveness as a teacher. Yes. You know, it's so that he can go on the journey and you know and drink and, and learn to be more open emotionally and, and teach his kids. I understand that's not what the film's trying to make with that scene, mm-hmm. but I took away a diff- completely different thing from that scene and was disappointed it didn't go in that direction. But yeah. Again, rewatching it, I was like, "Well, I know, I I know what's going to happen now, so I can appreciate the actual story more of, of you know these four friends and how that how that all goes." But yeah, it's still a great song, the, that, a great film with a great song at the end. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Fantastic song. Uh, do you want me to throw it to you before I? I watched move nothing. On? Oh, really? It was a quiet week for old Zeke boy. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, look, I, I some baking on the beach. No, I had a very relaxing week. Yeah, um, very nice. But no, it's it's interesting because it's like a lot of these films that you're going to be talking about this week will probably be watched by me in the following week. So oh, yeah, I'm promoting them. For um, you. <laughs> well, sort of. Um, but for the most part, yeah. I only thing I did watch was another one of those untold. Uh, I talked about it the oh, other that's two right, yeah. During uh, last week on the show, I watched another one, which was about Caitlyn Jenner. Um, oh, I've heard about this one. Yeah. This one was probably, for me, my least favourite so far. There's oh, two to go. Um, I think it's because I heard a lot of... I found that... I find this whole... We, this docu-series fascinating how they're all unique sort of element to each documentary. This one felt the most traditional out of the three I'd seen. Right. It wasn't trying to do anything flary or, or stylistic. It was very much just your traditional sports documentary, like classic uh stuff which is a bit of a shame because i feel like the other ones what benefited what i liked about the other ones is they felt like they had unique flavors whereas this one Mm. um it was very much just a biographical breakdown of of jenna's career and and obviously looking into the impacts of um sort of the trouble that caitlin had with with gender identity um and really interesting how much like between that and the pursuit for you know the the gold was really mm. really interesting you know in her in her olympic career so um definitely an interesting individual um unfortunately yeah i'm not saying it's bad still well shot and all that but right just didn't the direction didn't seem as interesting as the other ones yeah, is what you're saying. yeah. okay the crime and punishment one for me is still the strongest of the three yeah I've seen. There's, there's still two to go, but are they coming out? Or are they all? They're all dropped already. Uh, or... There's five out right now. I don't know if there's planning to be more. I actually haven't looked into it. Okay, interesting. Um, but I was just curious if like these were coming out each week. It'd or... Be cool if they were. Yeah, yeah. such a cool series. Um, 
I'm planning on I'm planning on potentially starting to watch sex education in the next week. So might oh I, yeah, might drop some you know bring that to the show next week. Yeah, for for me it's Succession. I've literally got the tab open on binge on my computer, but because they're going to drop season three soon. Mm. I've heard great things about Succession, um, both online and and within I really want circles. To watch- Billions. That's one. Oh, yeah. That's Stan, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So that's a good. There's too many shows, man. Way too many shows. I mean, like, shows shows are doing objectively better storytelling than film these days. Mm. I mean, there's more hit than than miss versus hit than miss in film. You know what I mean? And everyone's talking about Squid Game, which I saw, like, bits of it, and I did talk about last week, but. Now it's like almost required viewing because like everyone's talking about it. It's like the new Stranger Things in terms of the Netflix show that's like exploded. Um, although I've usually been good. I remember I caught Stranger Things before it like exploded. I remember being on that train real early and I, I always like being on that train. Um, I definitely won't say I was on the train for Squid Game because I sort of watched it and faded out. I will watch the rest of it. But yeah, in terms of shows, it's hard to find the time, isn't it? Mm. I can barely find time for the guilty. It's 90 minutes. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, so hopefully next week I'll be with you and watching some stuff. Well, how, uh, did you sort of um, stop the My Name is Earl stuff? or I have hit a bit of a wall on that, but okay. mid-season three, but I will get that done. Okay. I think um, those first couple seasons go by like so quickly, and then mm. he goes to prison in season three, and I feel like it really hits a wall. Um, He's just in prison for like a season. He goes to prison the end of season two. And then yeah, wow. I've watched the first five episodes. And he's not. I think the whole thing is now that they, the show switches, so he like works off his sentence by doing good things, right? And like, I don't know. It just like it feels kind of like um, a bit stifled. Yeah, yeah. I think the second season is is fantastic mm. with like really bleeding into the the ensemble cast in particular, like right. all of the colorful characters that live in in Camden County and I think <laughs> that's a big part of it sort of why it really feels like Logan Lucky in that second yeah, season yeah. where it's not necessarily about one character it's how they're all kind of funny in, in yeah. Logan Lucky so um okay well that's good if you're making your way sort of sort of through that yeah it's doing that in Archer trying to get through Archer too again. Right, so like, you've jumped right ahead to the new season I'm eh? nearly there yeah one more season I'll jump into the new season okay that's good yeah well that, I mean, the only other thing I've seen in this past week is Free Guy now let's let's spend a minute on this week uh, well I am free right now <laughs> ah there you are so, and, you, and you are a guy I am a man yes you know, yeah um, gonna hold on any jokes from previous shows we've discussed in the last five minutes but no uh, Free Guy Ryan Reynolds, and like we've known about this for a while, you know the um ah oh, video game guy, is gonna show the world or, or he's in a game something like that, yeah. and um, <laughs> he's just anticipating my no, my it's honestly laughing review. about your last joke there. Oh, that sort of slipped <laughs> through the cracks, didn't it? <laughs> so, I think I think the the word I could or the two words I could I could scrunch up for free guy was egregiously nonsensical. And so I wear it. Okay. Now Walk you me could, through it. You could you could argue like, oh well it, you know, it's about it's all in a video game, so you know, anything's anything's free game. But it's like, well, isn't that kind of the issue with it? I talked about on my letterbox review, I kinda of went to town on it, 
about how, you know, the video game medium these days, in the last uh, couple of decades, but you could argue of, all, of ever since they've existed, that it's a beacon of technological storytelling and artistry constantly pushing forward the medium. Um, and I just find it really frustrating that the Hollywood machine just, it won't go past its own ideas of what the video games were in the 80s, for example. I wrote the floating coin iconography, you know, this idea of, like, every game is like Mario, but then it's crossed with this concept that, obviously, these, you know, 50-year-old writers are hearing from their, from their children who are playing Fortnite about this idea of, oh, video games are just anything now. This idea of a generic open-world RPG game where, oh, like World of Warcraft, you want to go back, you know, a decade or two, Jeez, we're coming up on two decades since World of Warcraft. Crazy, that's, eh? that's insane, yeah. But but that idea of just like, oh, anything's nothing's off limits, everything goes, and it just it it creates like, yeah, the CGI department can do whatever they want. That's fun. Yeah. But it just feels like such a a cheap excuse for the screenwriter to just write stuff in. So you have all these commentaries about you know, oh, these these uh male fantasy trips that these characters are going on and the idea of everything's a day sex moxon because oh look you know not only can this character get out of this jam if he just randomly pulls out a lightsaber but we can play the cue because we're disney and now the whole crowd is going to cheer isn't it Yay. it's funny um just to interject on yep. this discussion yep. the two things i think to my mind where they're trying like two things that aren't explicitly video game films right but do this better than the films that are, quote, video game mm. films. Uh, is I honestly think to some extent, although albeit it's not a video game, but definitely has the, the, the real true to the world and then the real world ramifications. Right. It's probably the Lego movie has oh, that yeah. has that sort of balance there really yeah. well where it integrates sort of the... Uh, obviously, it's a kid's imagination in that situation, yeah. but it, it definitely has the same principle there mm. for sure, like the real world affecting the the um the video game or the fictionalized yeah, world yeah and then the other one is it's the first season of westworld okay, it's like which i still haven't seen which yet. and it's just we follow like william's character through basically a red dead-esque game obviously it's real yeah yeah quite quite like, <laughs> but obviously it's it's real to only a certain extent but it it, it is obviously a true barometer for like fantasies yeah it's just fascinating and then you get films like this that just have the eyes bigger than the belly case well going on the fact of the matter is it's it's not even about like the dual world situation because you can think of something like arthur and the invisibles and even though like you could say what you want about that film trilogy yeah yes there are there is a trilogy of those films i've seen them all trust me (laughs) some of them are atrocious if not all of them um I mean, Arthur is such a weird film, but you have that thing of the real world, and then down in the grass, you have, like, the world of the, um, oh, God. Well, I'm going to call them the the Invisibles. That's not what they're actually called. Mm. That's just the title of the movie. Uh, but, like, that land of creatures, and it, it, it's all real because it's just their smaller scale, and the adventure's on a different scope, but it is a real thing. For me, it's not even that so much. It's just, like, the treatment of the video game trope. And, again, being back to that old iconography... But then cheating with, oh, it's an open world, so anything's possible. And it's like, it's not appreciating the artistry or even like the mechanical element of actual gameplay. If you look into gameplay theory, which I, I don't think is a term many people think of or use, but 
if you think about the way your brain reacts to games, and this could mm. be anything from a 2D side-scroller to 3D open world to a simple puzzle game, like something like Portal, you know. Portal, because it's a direct puzzle game, you're constantly thinking about how to solve problems. But every game is like that, no matter what genre it comes from. Mm. And there is an art to it that none of these films, and I'm including Ready Player One, of course, here, is actually appreciating. I don't like to call them video game films because they don't actually show any appreciation to video games. It's, it's used as... A marketing you're right, tool. A marketing yeah. tool, a gimmick, an excuse to have two worlds where one's in danger of losing the other, that kind of thing. It, it I hate it because... It, Nobody involved in the film actually cares about video games. Mm. And I know I'm probably sounding like, oh, you're just upset they trashed your video games. Like, no, no, no. I'm saying that they're not using it correctly, you know? Mm. It's like when you watch something like Hugo from Scorsese, there is an authentic love for film by not only the people involved in the film, but the characters within the story. And they understand what makes film special. To to build on your point... um, with the film it's like it does feel like it's the one artistic medium that doesn't get gratification Mm. by cinema right because music constant movies about the affirmation for music and the art of creating music Mm. um some of our favorite films are exactly that yeah why can't there be a once for video games and and same thing goes for you know still art from and any form of still art from uh paintings to pictures mm. like there's a plethora of films that show the affirmation for those and yet video yeah. games doesn't seem to get the same uh satisfaction and the closest it gets are these matrix-esque films mm. that uh, are kind of towing the line like they're not really showing gratification they're more just a place for things to happen more than yeah anything. yeah even something um, like The Professor and the Madman is like a beautiful ode to the written word and, and books mm. and novels, and you just don't get that here. I would say there are films like, you know, I think it's called Grandma's Boy, um, which I haven't seen. I know that's meant to be sort of one of the better ones. It's not like two worlds separated by reality. It's, not, it's, mm. like, it's like a character. It's, it's a story about a character who likes games. I mean, it's sort of in that realm. So that might be the once that we haven't found yet in the video game story. So I want to, I want to acknowledge that, but... I agree with you completely. It's like, what is the trouble here? And it's because it's the only true successful medium in storytelling that has come after film. Because books predate film, paintings predate film, Mm. music predates film, but video games haven't. And that's why they just can't seem to get it right. Yeah, well, we need different generations. We're talking about screen theory and the birth of screen theory and how often. the 60s was sort of the renaissance for a lot of artistic theoretical movements. And, of course, like you said, it's uh, maybe we're just due for a video game theory renaissance where we finally recognise this is another form of art because the fact is a lot of those other circles still don't really see it that way, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely think one consistent thing from films like Ready Player One and stuff like that is I think... A lot of, like you said, every aspect of it, from the person creating the film to, honestly, the the actors acting in in mm. these films, I don't think they care about video games, like, and I think I'm pretty safe in assuming that because, yeah, you know, like the the fifty something year old man who loves film is probably all you know, like Ryan Reynolds, who I guess is like Deadpool esque, but it's like you know he's still a forty year old guy, he probably 
grew up playing them and probably, you know, they're a bit disjointed from that authenticity. Yeah, you know? exactly. And there's a stigma. And I remember, I'm going to, uh, oh God, I, I'm trying to remember her name, but she plays Chloe Frazier in the Uncharted games. Um, and I remember her, or Claudia Black, that's it. I'm glad right. I remember Claudia Black. I remember her talking about in, you know, the late 40s, so say like 2008, 2009, when she was working on Uncharted 2, telling her actor friends about the project and them sort of scoffing like you're doing a video game without realizing this was a full-on motion-captured multi-million dollar project yeah. that, frankly, is probably the most well-known thing she's ever done now. She's done, like, little bits and Rick and Morty and stuff, like voice work, but um, I think there is a stigma there, and I think it's going to take some really small indie film to do that, and I... It's funny, I've been thinking about this really recently, not, not that I'm in a rush to make a video game film, but stuff like this does sort of inspire me. It's sort of the same way of... I remember very simply being like I don't want to make any films about autism because it almost feels too obvious mm. in terms of a career pathway and then seeing how bad other films and TV are getting it kind of makes you want to do it you're like alright well maybe your, I should try your this call to action call to action exactly <laughs> this film needs a better call to action yeah. that's all I'm going to say no but here, here's the thing is I'm getting a similar vibe with this video game thing especially the idea that when people reminisce on old systems like what? What's the go-to console for you? Like your childhood? It's probably the PS2. Yeah, that makes um, yeah, PS2. Battlefront 2, PS2. There you go. Battlefront 2. But this is the thing: you have that console. Like this is the one that I associate with my childhood and my memories of the system. Yet console wars these days are so uh, filled up with technical jargon and what's the best, what runs the best. When that's not what you think about when you think of the PS2 or Battlefront. You're thinking about the memories created. It's almost like the the technical limitations actually served your memories of that. You know, oh damn, the, the PS2 won't read my disc, or you know, oh, I have to plug in a multi tap just to get four. Have to blow on it to make it work. Yeah, and, exactly. Like yeah. those things are part of the memory, and it's like I would love to do a film that explores that concept, but in a very grounded way. Where, where there's no two world BS. It's you're following characters who just like games, or maybe I mean, I was just talking about you haven't seen it, you don't want to see it the trailer for the new PTA film, Licorice Pizza. Mm. And I watched that and it's like, man, this is such a love letter to like the the young teen growth uh, coming of age story. I would love to do something like that. But for video games where it's like, I look back 15 years into my past about that. I know this is like a huge tangent on the film no, Free I Guy. Fair. I was but, just going to say mm. on Apple TV, there is a show called Mythic Quest, which follows okay. a video game studio. Oh, interesting. Um, like it's a obviously a fictionalized one, but mm. like they team behind the biggest multiplayer video game of all time is tasked with building worlds. It's still like a com- like a television comedy show, so right. it's still got probably more a Parks and Rec esque yeah way of looking at it. But at least there's a form of gratification. You would hope that it's more the case that they've actually put a you know they've got two seasons and yeah, exactly. very there, high there's rating some on legitimate love and, behind it. So the, you know the the jargon might be there, yeah. and I know Silicon Valley was a show. I for was a just about to say Silicon. That's what everyone tells me, Jake. You would love it. You would get it, um, and I'm 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 sure I would. But until then, I don't know the authenticity but what of the. What you're talking show. about is that I think both those are played for comedy's sake. Yeah, um, which yeah. is still you know gratification. Well, it's still valid, absolutely. Um, yeah. But you know you're talking about this serious artistic love letter, like you said, a once esque piece. Yeah, where exactly. It is, once is a love letter to music. Yeah, you know, and, and it's we like, can get that. I'm sure we can. One hundred percent, especially with like 
some of the stuff like you know you watch some of those rec- even from a musical point of view you watch some of the video game composing and stuff like that it's just crazy yeah totally um, I want to give a shout out real quick before we move on to Indie Game The Movie which is a documentary about a few indie developers and if you're in the gaming scene you would recognise the games they make you would recognise these developer names as well but um, that's a great doco that shows the stress and the anxiety and the loneliness of making indie video games mm. um, which covers sort of the Xbox 360, PS3 generation, mostly. But it's mostly backdrop to, like, their development and their mindsets. And that's a great, great, great doco. I don't know how to find it right now. I might have an old torrent on a hard drive somewhere of it. But um, that's a great... If you can get your hands on it, that's a great film. Great documentary. Probably one of the most um, intense uh, tangents we've gone on this part and this yeah, section of the no, show. Yeah, no, well, honestly, I, I would rather that than to just trash Free Guy for 20 minutes. Because I don't think it's great. Yeah. It's a very... I, I was not a fan of it, but that's what I would do in that circumstance. Of course. If I were to make some sort of video game love letter film. But yeah, that's that, that's it. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to stop talking about Free Guy now, but... No dramas. But yeah. Would you like to move into our career section? Um, Yeah, yeah. Well, I reckon yeah. we do a, a nice little drift, Zeke. We'll just oh. drift around that little uh, intersection. Cool. I got nothing. <laughs> it's easy. We don't even. We just go straight to it. Well, oh, then baby. it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching this week on the show, Zeke? We're watching Lamb. Meh. I may not always love you. But long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. Father! Only knows what I'd be without. Take it up. Get the teeth. A childless couple, Maria and Igvar, discover a mysterious newborn on their farm in Iceland. The unexpected prospect of family life brings them much joy before ultimately destroying them. Wow, that's a bit of a spoiler log dun, one, isn't dun, it? Done. This is directed by Vladimir Johansson. Yeah, and and much like last week's Pig directorial debut. So there you go. We had a good run here. I'm really enjoying just doing these these newer directorial debut fresh contemporary stuff yeah. I love always reminiscing on, on stuff in the past but it has been nice to have a quite a contemporary run recently Jack. yeah for the most part in the last several films excluding director's corners yeah we've pretty much just been doing contemporary films which is nice which is nice and I'm glad we caught this real early this doesn't I think the US proper release so this is the 8th uh, so we're getting an Irishman territory of early releases which uh Cinema Side Show exclusive. Yeah, you know, it's just we're just special. Yeah. We're kind of a big deal. We're kind of <laughs> a big deal in the Perth local region. <laughs> Members only screening, Zeke. <laughs> when that guy I had to awkwardly shimmy around that guy well, and give, give him my ticket. Speaking of 
Yeah, let's walk through that because obviously we're talking about this preview screening. So we obviously saw this at Luna Leaderville. Shout out yes. to Luna Leaderville, sponsor us quietly. Um, <laughs> uh, if but only. Yeah. Oh man, I would totally jump on that train. We can make uh, that happen. I'm sure. I'm sure we can. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, we obviously caught a yeah pre uh, early preview screening at Luna Leaderville. Um, cinema One, which is their biggest cinema. Oh, is it Cinema One? Yes, yeah, Cinema yeah, One. Cinema yeah. One. Um, Number Uno. And yeah, like we got our tickets and we were walking to the door and there was this kind of uh, older gentleman who just kind of awkwardly stuck his hand out in front of you like, and looked I, at us. I, and it was like, we very clearly got the tickets, got it. We were getting a coffee. We got a coffee and it was so clear we were going to see Lamb because you had to go through all the hoopla yeah. to get the tickets. And he just didn't say anything, just kind of... I was like, oh, okay. Well, I sort of shimmied around and then reached for my wallet. I, I thought it was actually quite smooth of me, to be honest, in an otherwise awkward interaction. Yeah. But that that is a good point. I understand because it's, like, it's a members-only thing. I guess you want to make sure the right people go on the right side. But otherwise, you're right. It's usually a pretty relaxed yeah. place. It's, it's not a, it wasn't like... I mean, it was reasonably full, but it wasn't sold out by any stretch. No. It was probably Well, 50, I heard 50. the guy behind us, when we walked in, they were like, oh, that, those were the last two there. I was like, why did you need... Were you counting? Yeah. Why did you need me to like move my coffee over, reach into my it's, pocket? It's also it's, a, it's eleven a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> it's hardly like, hey Jake, we're gonna know, sneak in. You bro. know what? That'd be really cool, man, if we sneak in and watch a half lamb baby be born. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what that's what hooligans do. Uh, um, I love it. Most esche thing ever. Yeah, that was interesting. Because yeah, uh, we because we scream <laughs> esche, um, but. It was very odd, and then the gentleman then proceeded to address everyone, but, mm. um, you know, you talked about this when you went and saw uh, um, Shiver, Shiver Baby. Baby. Like, he didn't present with a lot of flair. Like, he was very, uh, just kind of, like, chill. Like just Yeah, so he was sort of... Almost like he was talking to himself, but he yeah. was talking to everyone. <laughs> but, like, he's sitting in the aisle, yeah. I think, look, I'll say this, because he's clearly, like, kind of a more spokesman involved guy at Luna and he's talking about like some of the future events coming up and the event very 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 smart because the idea and this is the vibe I got from Shiver Baby is like it's a members only screening but there's apparently like critics and press there the idea is that they're sort of getting the local reviews for the film at these events so he's somewhat talking obviously like we're we're just like two random guys who you know pay 20 bucks a uh, year alright well No, Maybe like, the opinion of us will have a critical effect on the letterbox score. For no, this that's film. true. That's very. I'm just. I'm just saying. 142 episodes. Jack. But I feel like they do target very specific people to go to these screenings to for write sure. their like reviews before yeah. the movie actually comes yeah, out. So there is there is sort of a sense of like we're presenting to this specific group of people here vibe, and obviously the girl who presented the Shiver Baby was a, had a bit more a bit more flair to a presentation. You know, but I, I also would rather like a quiet, nerdy dude talk to us than like a producer because sure. you're overly excited and and as a as a BS artist, you know, has yeah. worth the trade. I would rather that. So yeah, I didn't I didn't mind old man Jesse Newell presenting to the <laughs> Jesse yeah. if you're listening. You, you got to meet this guy. The yeah. mannerisms, spot on. It's, it's it you, buddy. It's you at sixty. <laughs> Oh god! Um, awesome. No, okay. Well, moving <laughs> into the film, like you said, directorial debut. But what are we watching this week, Zeke? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 I beat you to it. Um, 
yeah no like obviously yeah like i was saying um what interesting you, one wasn't it yeah well what, what did you what were the overall thoughts on lamb zeke if you can conjure them up in a succinct yeah way. look um it's an interesting one <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's long. um it's tricky because it's like with pig i was like i remember us walking out and going yeah that was a good film don't really know what else to say to this film. Mm. And then we proceeded to have a really, you know, in-depth conversation. Whereas this yep. one, it's like, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. And you don't really know where to start. Yeah, it's I, it's ironic because I thought the exact same thing. So, yeah, kind of a juxtaposed walkout session. I think for me, it, it was interesting to watch these two back-to-back because not that they're similar necessarily mm. there are similarities i joked about it being the director's corner both films actually do separate their acts by title cards so that he like spell out acts one two and three to the audience which i thought was interesting they'd both do that but um which i think is actually kind of a mistake for this film because it's mm. pointing out how strange the pacing is in places i think for me my takeaway is and i it's like i said at the start of this episode with i would put this on my 1100 to watch list for very specific reasons not just that it's purely a great film i think it's a extremely well made film it's hypnotic Mm. like you actually made this comment to me halfway through you're like your eyes haven't left the screen like you you're glued yeah to this imagery and it was and i thought the visual storytelling the translation of its eerie tone and all those things like the very subdued storytelling it's very visual there's not a lot of dialogue you can probably fit all the dialogue on five pages um, which I think is great for a great audience who don't want to read subtitles, which, you know, even if you're like that, mm. screw you. <laughs> but I think that all reminded me of Under the Skin, which I think is another A24 film that also has very almost abstract visual storytelling where the films is sort of playing out and you almost have to catch up with it. There's not a lot of exposition or dialogue or any of that. Um, I think it's excellent, excellent in those ways. I love the themes, and I think that, that there's definitely things we could talk about. I know you're definitely going to talk about the idea of like the disruption of nature's course, which I think is a huge part of this film, mm. and like how that ties, I guess, into maybe the classic mythos in Iceland. Or I, I know you did a little research on that more than me. My main takeaway is this is a film about the selfishness of happiness, and there's a lot of scenes that really demonstrate that well for me in terms of. We start the film and, you know, we're going to jump straight into spoilers, or at least I'm going to, so. Mm-hmm. Our, our ultimate recommendation, I would say, yeah, go check this out. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. I reckon it's going to be very divisive, but I think it's very interesting. I don't know if you would agree with that at all. No, I absolutely would encourage people to go check this film out. Mm-hmm. I, I think divisive is probably even the wrong... Okay. It's strange and it's a slow burn. Um, yes yes very and there are moments it's fascinatingly remarkable because some of its biggest strengths um kind of bleed in slowly to some of the most baffling and frustrating parts of the film but Mm. um frustrating is a good word for some of this (laughs) yeah it's such an interesting film because yeah it does leave you kind of uh a little speechless at times because it mm. is is the first act is is I said to you I made the joke uh, yeah. this was uh, this year's a Star is Born where the first act <laughs> has you completely and utterly hooked and then you get into that second act and you just kind of hit a wall and you're right. just kind of like treading water for a bit and then 
bada boom, bada bing, 10 minutes up, or it's all over. Like, feels like the last 20 minutes is like when it picks back up again. Right. And we were asleep for the last 40 because some, you know, we were kind of in this... Well, I'll, I'll, I agree with you. The, the film is strongest in its opening in mm-hmm. the sense that things are getting really good quite early in the film and very intriguing, very engaging. I think mm-hmm. the film, visually speaking, is very engaging from top to bottom. I was never bored at any moment. I think for me it was when thing when when all the the lines start to connect and all the beats start you, you start to understand what where the story's going is when you start getting frustrated. And I think for me we talked about this walking out. It felt like there were character arcs or just characters period that were I don't want to say unnecessary but they were wasted mm. and that there was a lot of wasted potential in certain areas. I think certain things come up way too late and too suddenly in the film. And as much as I was intrigued by everything I was seeing, the pacing is a bit of a mess. Um, and things don't... I feel things don't happen the way they could in terms of the rising tension of a narrative or the elements in there to create this epic climax. Mm. I don't think it happens in the correct order. And like I said, we're going to jump straight into spoilers. I think... It was very astute for you to notice some of the things that I had actually been spoiled ahead of time. So when I was grabbing the trailer for last week's episode, the top comment with the most amount of likes, I'm guessing now is just like a prediction of what was going to happen. It mm. basically wrote out a bunch of things, like what the story's about. Some right, some wrong, so I'm guessing it was just a prediction. But one of the things was that this couple lost their real-life child. Yeah. And I'm glad you picked up on that pretty early without having that being spoiled. Um, and that becomes very overt when they re- visit the gravesite, and uh, it's uh, Ada, I believe, is the name of the the lamb half lamb half human child yeah. that shares the name with the previous uh, child of the of yes. It's a good reveal, but then they also don't really take that anywhere. No, I thought it might have been smarter for us to know up front. I mean, but like you said, you knew just based on the visual storytelling, the fact that there was a pram ready at the go. The fact that uh, there was clear yeah, a cot, sorry, yes. oh yeah, good call, yeah, a cot, um, um, or the fact that like the conversations they were having about time travel, you picked it up pretty early that there was something that's happened, something they regret, something that's lost, and it was pretty evident. Oh well, I guess it's a, a child, and this leads me to my prediction of well, prediction, my takeaway from this film being the inherent selfishness of happiness is when they find this child that. I guess through some cosmic lens, and this isn't really explained. I'm glad that it's not explained. I think it's fine, this upper interpretation, this this cosmic connection with this half-lamb, half-human baby mm-hmm. that compels them to just claim it. This is mine now. Well, this is yes. ours. We're the parents now. And obviously they have that, um, the lamb that's, the mother lamb that's very upset. And I, first off, the lamb acting in this film <laughs> is spot on. Which... It- <laughs> Those animals can act their little hearts out. They're they're awesome in this film. It's pretty <laughs> interesting because it's like because like what you're saying when they when they claim this yes this baby and they definitely they hold off on revealing that it is a half human half lamb hybrid for a good period of time. Too. Yeah, we we specifically don't see the actual birthing. We don't no. even get a look at the child for a while. Yeah, and if we do, it's just the lamb head. Yes. Um. Which you, uh, and, you assume was rotoscoped on. It only, um, yeah, yeah. It was, <laughs> I'm sure it was, yeah. Um, it's it's interesting though because it, it, you're not until the the final uh, scene in, in in Act One or Chapter One mm. um, 
do we see that it's got a you know it's got a human lower half or like a so it's not even just the lower half it's lower half and one one hand and one uh hoof yeah um, it's interesting where the actual literal cutoff is in the body yeah like where they when they mask it and yeah. um that's in the fog when they, they lose it because the mm. the, the sheep that yeah. actually birthed this this birthed ada is the real co- mother the real mother <laughs> is constantly like like well, harassing, harassing them, them and, and you know. going after it and um that sort of leads to you know a tipping point with her and um and maria and um but it's it's quite early on and it's like everything like you said with the pacing and things feel a bit muddled it's like you know when we move into that scene it's it's kind of an intense scene yeah um but really kind of gets left by the wayside until kind of a throwaway line in a later scene Mm, um yeah there's not really it never feels like there's a this i think sometimes it's it's frustrating because particularly what happens in the second act there's not a lot of cause and effect like actions like we talked i i think a really apt example is to compare this to the lighthouse from a couple weeks ago Mm. because there is a moment an explicit moment where patterson's character kills a seagull and that kind of opens the floodgates yeah for the sort of psychological torment and we talked about there being like a, a cosmic change like in the wind and how things go but it almost the way the way film plays it out it's almost a literal change mm. like him literally doing that has caused this wind to shift and it's a cosmic thing but the film presents it as a literal change it is cause and effect through and through literally and like emotionally mm. in the film and I agree with you, this film doesn't really tackle what would you would say is a very similar scene, a scene where an animal is killed. It's meant to be the shift in, in narrative, which is why I thought, number one, it was weird that that's the beginning of chapter two. We go into chapter two, and then she kills the mother, which I thought was strange. That's a perfect mm. way to end act one. But like that, that's fine. So like, okay, whatever. That's a little, that's very nitpicky, sure. But then you're right. Why wasn't that moment dragged out? And for me, when I'm watching this, like, yeah, the, 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 there isn't as much cause and effect. And in terms of the characters trying to achieve something they want, they achieve what they want in the first act is, you know, getting a hold of this child and raising it. And the rest of the narrative is them sort of fending off the potential harmful things. So obviously you have the mother who's shot in the second act. And then you have the brother, who I'll get the name Peter, Peter. With a lot of little crosses above yes. the name. He's <laughs> kind Pete. of like a, an 80s rock star washer. <laughs> I think that's actually what he is. Right. I mean, that would make sense. There's a whole music video thing. That yeah, happens. yeah. Oh, that's a great scene as well. But yeah, so the brother comes in and it's about his questioning of it. But then that's just another thing for them to feed off, another fret to their happiness. And that's where that line comes in where he says, like, you know, what the hell is going on? Which. I want to talk about the audience reaction to that scene and the entire film leading up into that scene. I was going to say, you're going to give the audience some praise for this, their performance. <laughs> uh. No, but this, this is the thing. I mean, I mean, it was very telling of what the film's trying to do, and I think it does it well in this regard mm. because that's the line where he's like, what's, what's going on? And he replies, happiness. And for me, that's when it clicked. It's like, well, it's about the selfish of that. They're killing the real-life mother of this child for their own selfish need yeah. to, you know, as said, to achieve this sense of happiness. Um, and let me just be reminded, 
what the point was we're about to say. What were you just saying a second ago, sorry? Uh, we were talking about, uh, well, Peter's reaction to the situation. Right. And then I was like, oh, you're going to give the praise to the old... Right, the audience. Audience. The, the old audience. So I feel like leading up to this moment, there was almost like this collective holding of the breath for like the first half of this film. Because the film never overtly shines a mirror on itself in regards to the absurdity of the situation. Like, it's an absurd situation. We as an audience inherently know that because this is, you know, this weird hybrid creature we've never seen before Mm. and the characters have never seen before. And yet there seems to be, you know, their reaction seems a little shocked at first, but nothing nothing out of control by any sense. They they run out of the bar. Oh, my God! There's a a degree of um, sort of... Acceptance, Acute, acceptance, which something, which is something out of a almost a Yorgos Lanthimos kind mm. of world of of these absurdest things. Yeah. Albeit the delivery is absolutely different in a Lanthimos film; it's deadpan and serious. Well, I think that I think that's the key right there: is the emotions that characters in a Lanthimos film do not share the emotions we as human, normal humans would have. No, in a situation like that. Whereas theirs is quite normalized. If anything, it's probably maybe more even akin to like a Bong Joon Ho kind of film with mm. some absurdist moments that right. lead to relatively normalized reactions. Um, and yeah, well, the fact that there was no overt like shock. Re- there's intrigue on their faces. There's questioning, mm. but it's not overt fear. Yeah, but it's and it is it's interesting. Like you said, it's the the happiness response from Igvar is yeah. is very clearly them being yeah they reclaimed their happiness. They they feel entitled to this. They're willing mm. to take this animal away from the the matriarchal uh, representing because this wasn't a it wasn't an act of God. It was no. actually just Mother Nature playing itself out and. Yeah. As we come to find out by the film's end when we meet the actual father. Because until then, we don't really know. No. Until we see, oh, there is a literal father creature. Sheep man. Sheep sheep man has arrived. (laughs) Da-da-da-da. There was one... Okay, speaking of the audience, there was one guy, if you remember this, when when that reveal shot... Of the of the the sheep man, the sheep man with the with the rifle. There was one guy in the audience. Who, his exact response was, <laughs> <laughs> which that killed me a little bit. It is a tough. So look, it's funny, a tough yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think this film is is definitely got multiple layers going on for it, but it definitely does play moments for humor. I feel yeah. like it is aware of how it's self-aware how absurd it's it. well that that's what i was getting at is um, there's no hint of it being self-aware of the absurdism until the brother arrives for breakfast mm. and that audience reaction our audience like pissed themselves laughing throughout that whole scene us included and i think that was almost because we were holding our breath for the last 30 40 minutes waiting for a sign that does this film know this is weird <laughs> yeah, and when the film finally says like, "Yes, this is," he is the character you've been waiting it's, for. It's a good the surrogate because yeah. it it sort of makes sense to an extent because obviously the landscape is such a huge part of this film too. Mm. Um, and Gorgeous these two farmers, this farmers couple, we don't see them interact with anyone else the whole film. No. Like, it, unlike Nicolas Cage's character in Pig last week, you know he did have interaction with the outside world. It was bare minimum. But it was, yeah. you know, through... Um, but he knew people. He knew people. Yeah. Um, whereas these guys, 
oh we they legitimately rate that create they they create the food they eat basically yeah. they self-sustainable they are self-sustainable and and so their isolation is is pure and the mm. only person we see interact with them is a family member who you know is, is a bit more metro based but mm. um yeah it is interesting that how you know, isolated this incident is and um you know the the sort of the interesting i found when i was you know exploring the sort of the the folklore phenomenon yep. that this film's kind of based around and um you know Sion uh Johansson who's one of the co-writers on this was okay. was talking about how that's sort of what it's 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 like on on these kinds of farms that are out in the middle of nowhere is you start to feel like the mountains have characters and they're you know mm. they're like these in like so it's kind of all in all in your head but the the fo- you know obviously the seclusion and the isolation leads to this sort of folklore and and this sort of abnormality is maybe even normal for um these two farmers like mm. they think it's odd sure but like we said they weren't like oh my god we need to work out how this happened or we or need even to take go- this to a or, scientist or, or even <laughs> accusing one another of maybe you know doing something horrible with yeah. a with a well that's one of the other things i thought i had been spoiled was that it was um ingvar who actually had sex with this with this lamb or this sheep and produce the baby. So yeah. I spent most of the film thinking that's what actually it was. But of course that was a fake spoiler. So. Of course. <laughs> um, and you wouldn't be wrong for it. It's a half human, half yeah. lamb baby. I mean, when I read that, I was like, ah, oh, damn it. Like I believed it. It yeah. was like fair, fair game. No, I definitely think that is a, <laughs> that is left to the end for that very reason. But it, it's very mm. clear that there's this incredible, the, the problem that I had tying it back to the lighthouse was, yeah, when that moment comes in where Maria kills the sheep, the 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 mother sheep. Yeah. Um, I think it, her number was like three one one five. Um, but, I, I didn't know this number. Um, that's the moment you go, okay, well, this encroaching danger is going to make itself known to us now. It's going mm. to feel like it, and I don't think you ever feel like Peter is really going to be that danger i mean in fact they they kind of put the kibosh on that pretty quickly after he's you know takes ada out to shoot her yeah and then can't do it um but i think more importantly yeah it's the the danger is very clearly something from outside this farm like it's implied through you know like noise and mixing and 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 just this weird sort of being watched feeling yeah um some cosmic force but out there is coming. Doesn't really thing. make itself known until the last twenty minutes, which is a little frustrating because it's like I said to you, it's like you know, in the the later stages of the film, the dog, the sheep dog on the farm, it's yeah. an un, uh, not a great ending, un- untimely demise, just dies. But it, it we happens. Hear, I think we hear a gunshot. We hear that, so we know it's some something mm. has shot it. We know that much. Oh, I think the dog got its neck snapped. Oh, possibly. Uh, the the yeah. gunshot is when uh, Idvar gets shot. Oh, I, I could have swore the dog was shot as well. Mm. I mean, either way, like there is some sonic cue <laughs> that For the sure. dog has been killed. Now, I agree with you in the sense that some of the thi- some of these things happen in a weird order because why wouldn't you topple these events on top of each other to create more discourse? Because then, you know, they introduce the brother, and then before there's any more hint of of a disturbance they sort of show him, you know, going back on his word. Mm. And then we see him sleeping on the couch with the child and 
And then from this point on, it's like, okay, well, now Peter is... He's basically on that side. He's yeah. understood that this is a surrogate for their grief, and he's no longer a threat to their happiness. So it's a very linear thing of this person's a threat, now he's not. Now this new thing's a threat, now it's not. No. Now this thing's a new threat. And it's like, if you just toppled those things together, where, you know, maybe the dog has been shot or had its nips. Now, maybe it's died or been killed before we learn that Peter is no longer a threat. So it becomes more of an accusational build-up where characters start accusing themselves of, oh, you did this, no, you did that. And because it's so linear, it's like, oh, well, what's the next threat? It feels sort of made up. And by the time that we mm. get to the, the sheep man and that guy's in the back behind us are kind of laughing, it's it's not even... I don't even think it's the absurdity of the image... We've sort of gotten used to it at this point with this film. Absurdive imagery. Yeah. It's the fact that this is a character that's come out of nowhere. We yeah. had no clue who this character was up until now. Uh, I definitely think that you've hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, I think that's where the absurdism comes from. And if, if there were hints of it earlier... Now, you did pick up on on hints of like that scopophilia side of things where the opening shot, you reckon, is actually the it's perspective a... of the sheep man yeah. actually finding... Sort of their, their prey, I guess, <laughs> to have yeah. a baby with. Now, I didn't take that away, but I think that's a very likely interpretation of that opening shot. Well, apart from that, there's there are shots that feel scopophilic and feel like well, the, the hills are watching you sort of yep. situation. Yep. But like I said, they're, they're that unexplicable threat, which kind of really should have come into effect after Maria kills the mother, mm. um, just kind of doesn't. Um, until that that last scene, which sort of kind of just like it all happens in the space of ten minutes. It's yeah. um, you know where, and it is you know it's it's got sort of cosmic balancing there, which I like that you know Eva gets killed, and you know it's sort of like a husband for a wife situation. Yeah, it's the eye for um, an eye story, right? and um, so that's that's quite interesting, but um. Yeah, just doesn't get explained. So the, it gets a bit absurd by the end. And not in a, like, a sorry-to-bother-you kind of absurdist <laughs> way. Yeah, yeah. Because everything in that is then motivated. So um, it's it's just kind of a little little crazy. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's why I think the pacing's a bit of a mess. Because some of these things, if they just happened in different orders, you could have had a much more engaging question of, like, what is this looming presence? Because it feels like it's sort of linearly going through each potential threat and then solving that and then moving on to the next as opposed to just toppling them together. And I think you're right. The fact that, you know, when when she does kill the mother, why isn't there like an extra sense of this uh, cosmic being? Now now there's like a sense of vengeance being caused on the other side. You know, why? I just, I feel like it should have happened in different orders now. Uh, yeah, I think I think in terms of the script, that's where we sort of sit. I I don't have any individual problems with the things that happen in this film, but I think there's a much more clever, succinct order of of telling the story. And I'm wondering if it's even possible to just do it in the edit without any reshoots, re-editing this film, so it feels more layered, so it feels like more of the threats are sort of looming in at the same time. I reckon it's totally achievable. <laughs> Lon exhale. Probably not. Um, I'm thinking. 
Um, at least to make it a li- you more could probably like think, that. You could probably tidy up the Peter stuff a little bit and draw that out a little yeah. bit more. Um, and take out all of the weird sort of wanting to sleep with his brother's wife yeah. stuff, which... Goes nowhere. Doesn't... Sorry, it goes it, nowhere. It, it literally has no point. Yeah. Um, in the film. Um, See, that's what I he, thought... He, he's important, like... What he's important for is the person to establish the absurdity, and then he needs to be a danger. And then when he's not yeah. a danger anymore, he's kind of run his course. He's completely useless at that point. Um, the moment he chooses not to kill uh, Ada, he should have been on the bus the next day heading home. Like, he's got nothing yeah. left to be in the story, really. Like, um, Especially if they're going to play it like that, where in Act 1, it's the mother who's the threat, and then she's shot and buried. Act 2, it's the brother who's the threat. So as soon as Act 2 ends, you're right. He should be on the bus leaving. Yeah. Why is he there in the third act watching himself sing on the VHS tape? And join? And I get it, joining in on the on the fun. And that's another example of the selfishness of happiness is, is obviously this child is feeling very isolated and having self-identity crises right. while you know the surrogate parents are getting drunk in the other room singing karaoke. Mm. Like, I get that. But why does the brother need to be there for that? So if you're going to go down this route of like having this succinct order of frets that you then eliminate, then the brother shouldn't be there past the, the second act. Especially because, and again, I'm going to reiterate this, and you've said it as well, the romance or the, the flirty aspect of it goes nowhere. Yeah, it almost feels like they're just strangely flip-flopping between is he an antagonist or a protagonist, mm. or is he a... Probably that's more, that's not incorrect. Is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? Is right. actually yeah, the yeah, correct yeah. way of saying it. Um, and, um, yeah, it's so, I think you're 100% right. That might be somewhere you do it. You just cut out that scene altogether. Um, but, it, you know, it's what I would really like. What I would, I would have liked both of the pets to, um, be killed over the course of the second act. I know I'm, that I'm sounds... Gonna cli- I'm going to clip that out. Yeah. I would like both of the pets to be killed. Yeah, like <laughs> real sense that we're there, it's slowly honing in. Because um, you know what that creates? Killing the dog, but sparing the cat. Like, not even just that specifically, but like the film doing several occurrences of that. It mm. just feels random. Why did they kill the dog instead of the cat? If you, you know, know the dog's jobs to herd the sheep, there's probably some form of of nature coming back to. But I mean, quite yeah, quite possibly. But it's it's like it when I'm watching this, it feels like things are happening for no real reason. Hundred mm. percent. And it's like when when there there are multiple scenes where a character would come home, and the other character wouldn't be there, so they're sort of calling the name, looking around, and it it's sort of it just feels random, you know. Yeah. I, uh, like, uh, like a good example towards the end so she's obviously Maria's obviously driving the brother back to the bus so then the other two characters are sort of just in the house looking for each other can't find it alright let's go for a walk mm. alright we're gonna drive the tractor like I understand that leads to him eventually getting shot at the end of the film yeah but it's also just like a sort of like why I, I think that's part of the inherent emptiness of a film like this that's so quiet and it has so little dialogue mm-hmm. that there's a lot of whys that because they can't be explained visually, they just don't get explained. Yeah, and, pretty much. And I think that is kind of a problem. Now, I still think this is a great 
film. We're kind of dissecting the script and saying this should have happened instead of this. Mm. Um, because I think these are really, frankly, obvious flaws with the film. I think they're very serviceable, yeah. For sure. Yeah, like... Very I, there. They're very apparent. Yeah, I'm just... I'm surprised that... I'm surprised that this is in the film. You know? Like, I, I feel like it should be more obvious these decisions that are being made. Yeah. You know, I, why I, is the brother still there in the third act? With the flirty and all the... Like, why is any of this in the film? I, I feel like we generally are on top of that. <laughs> I don't think it's an us problem, not understanding the purpose of it. No. Or the point of it. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much it, though, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's... We got that. We felt that when we walked out. So... Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. I, I, yeah, that's all I can... Let's move on to the... (laughs) I want to talk a bit more about the visual storytelling. That that is where I think the film's total strength is. For sure. Um, Especially, I love the opening stuff with... How they sort of gel the mundanity of their of their day to day task, in a way that the audience, excuse me, can kind of relate to, mm-hmm. in the sense that they're they're juxtaposing mundane, quiet shots of uh, of like characters cooking breakfast, but then in that same collection of shots or the montage, if you will, they're actually they're birthing the uh, the sheep, and it's done with such a casualness, and and the way it's shot is no different from the way the breakfast scene is shot that it tells us like these characters this is their normal day-to-day life and that this birthing process that i think most people generally wouldn't have experience in mm. doing like neither of us have helped in a birthing process can't, i don't think that's on, it's on, on the list on the list <laughs> things you've done no but i i like that it's show by showing these events with like the same sort of shots with the same emptiness in the soundtrack and in the the audio um, that it is normalizing or showing that this is a normalized part of their lives. I love that a lot. Um, I might have been spoiling a little bit of my highlight scene there, but but that's okay. But as you know, as part of the demonstration, I want to make that. I think the visual storytelling here is excellent, and even though we have problems with the scripts, and I know I know you think that it kind of gets a bit more, would you say, boring in the second act? Mm, well, it becomes a bit muddled. I think it loses right. itself. It loses a bit of steam there because it focuses on. You know, it throws away scenes with like Peter trying to harass Maria for no real reason, and then yeah. jumping back to that's an animal. Like he, he, his character feels a bit all over the place in the second act. Yeah, and only in the latter stages when he decides to take Ada out does he feel like an actual threat. Mm. Um, and then that kind of loses itself. I think the second act is where it really loses steam. That's fair. I think in terms of engagement, like like you said, my I was glued to the screen the whole time, so I think that has it absolutely going for it and again that's why I, that's why I would put it on my list so I think the visual storytelling is so strong and there's enough to interpret there so I compare it to Under the Skin because that's also a film that does very little hand holding mm. very little explanation um, and for that film it really clicked for me what the story was in the last 10 minutes of that film for here for me it clicked in the middle you know at that midpoint when, when that line happiness that is all I needed to hear to understand what my interpretation of this film is despite, you know, the discourse of or the disruption of nature and like the you know, what a mother would do for their child you know, in different scenarios, surrogate mother, real mm. mother, it doesn't matter. Um, for me it was the the happiness angle that I thought was interesting. And the fact of the matter is they get that ripped away from them. Because yeah. would you you would say that the the sheep man's motivation to get their child back 
it's selfish, but it's not selfish in the way that we would um, not agree with that act, you know? We understand that. No. The, this human couple... eye for eye. Exactly. Stole their child, killed the mother, and I know it, like, we're getting into very animalistic territory. I'm sure, like, they didn't have, like, a romantic family lifestyle, especially at that first shot. It was the conception <laughs> yeah. of the baby. I don't think they're going home for dinner every night. But, you know, there's still that element of, like, you've done me wrong and I want revenge. Um, it's still a selfishness to wanting to achieve that sense of happiness, getting your child back, but more so forgivable and understandable than what the two human parents are doing. Yeah. Where they've just stolen a baby because that's what makes them happy. That's what gives them that. Well, they're trying to fill that void, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And they're willing to compromise someone else's happiness. In fact, kill someone. Yeah. Or kill an animal over it. Um, An animal is a someone. (laughs) Well, it's true. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Look, it's it's yeah. That's probably pretty much the gist of mm. uh, of everything you need to really cover. Um, I remember there was one point a little later when I really wish. I also wish they'd spent a little bit more time with Ada as a character. Oh yeah, um, that's fair enough. Trying to hone and develop that, especially in the 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 second act, it definitely feels like Ada is often a a passenger for the other characters' development, which I think especially when Ada gets a bit older and mm. is, is becoming more self-aware of their look and their feeling, that's really yeah. interesting to explore. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're right. They don't really do it much because, well, first off, you can't talk. Yeah. <laughs> Not that many characters talk that much in yeah, this film. They, they've done pretty good with visual storytelling. But though. that's it. Yeah, you're right. Looking at the mirror, that's all we need to know in terms of where's, what is Ada's headspace at. Mm. But... On the same token, you're right. I think it's a little underexplored. And, and I think it's underexplored for a reason because, again, I think that's part of the parents and their motivation is that it is selfish and that mm. we spend more time with them than with the child. So I think that's all sort of motivated by that idea. Yes. It does remind me a bit of Annette, <laughs> the baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not as a... It's not as overt, I think, as Annette likes to have characters that say absolutely... Yeah, everything they're thinking. <laughs> well, they they both have a very similar scene in terms of a uh, sexual acts, except only one of them the character sings during the act. So, uh... <laughs> oh, would you say Zeke that scene with Ada in the mirror would that be your highlight scene? Yeah, I'd yeah? say so. Okay, I think um... surprise, surprise is Lando in disguise. <laughs> this is a random throwaway. <laughs> that was a very random. Um, <laughs> See if yeah. anyone gets that reference. <laughs> no, I would. I would definitely say that um, would probably be my heart scene. That it, it, yeah, it's cool. great visual storytelling, um, de- and it, it has um, you know it, it sort of has that when the things start to go into effect. I find. Um, so uh, the sense of a pending, uh, pending mm. doom is starting to move in. Everything's the, yeah, coming to a yeah, close. Yeah, the wheels are in motion. Yeah, uh, yep. is yep. what I'm trying to say. Um, and that would be probably yeah, my highlight scene. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, do, I do agree with that. Um, well, in the sense that like the impending doom really does come from that scene. And i got to say as well, when it leads to that, that painting of the herd of sheep as it zooms in, I was really worried that that was going to be the last shot. I'm glad it wasn't. Mm-hmm because there is a little bit left to be desired after that shot, but it also didn't lead to what I imagined was going to be like all the sheep sort of coming in like an animal farm prequel type thing going on there. But 
Um, that that just Come carries on. off from your would've scene. Would have been cool if there was some animal farm. Cool. Yeah, little even just a little commentary, which maybe there is. If I if I reread it and then watch the film back to back, I might notice some more stuff. But my highlight scene, I kind of spoiled it earlier, but I think it has to specifically be that birthing scene, not the one where Ada is born, but the one before that because of the way it's shot in such a naturalistic way, the way they play it. Um, and I, I like the idea of like the mother immediately cleaning, um, you know the the, the baby. <laughs> just, I don't know. Just, I liked the naturalistic presentation of that. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, I don't know. Great, great visual storytelling. No Good dramas. Thing. Well, if you would like to catch a lamb, it's currently out in cinemas near you, or if you're in America, it comes out this week. Yeah. Well, actually, actually, yeah, that, that was our previous screening. So I think. The 8th over in the US, I think the 14th over here. So you have to wait to the 14th to watch it. There you go. But, well, we're, but we're better than you, so we've already seen it. <laughs> Damn. I'm sorry. Damn. <laughs> brutal. Oh, I didn't mean it. I love, I love you guys. I love you so much. As a, don't write any hate mail. Yeah, I, I don't speak for you on that. That's, uh, <laughs> that's all you, buddy. No uh, dramas. But Jake, what's actually new in cinemas this week? Yeah, so there's uh, a lot, a lot coming to cinemas. I'll rattle through streaming because there's very little coming there. Yeah, Promising Young Woman, which drops on Prime on the seventh. This is Thursday. I think that's part of the subscription now, so it'd be cool. Speaking of part of the subscription, Disney Plus Black Widow finally drops without the premium price, so you can watch it as part of your subscription. There you go. As well as the Muppets Haunted Mansion special. Ooh. So if you're a fan of the Muppets, I like the Muppets. There you go. You got that coming your way. Coming to Netflix this week. There's someone inside your house, which sees Sydney Park play a young girl who must confront her past after her fellow school students are murdered, specifically in Hawaii. That's an important part of this logline, that this happens in Hawaii. <laughs> okay. Now, coming to cinemas, like you asked, Zeke, it's a, it's, a, it's a big one. It's a big one. The big one. There you go. Uh, a Fire Inside is a documentary that focuses on the psychological effects of a volunteer firefighter in the months following the Black Summer bushfires of Australia early last year. I still remember that very vividly, that that yeah, time. It was a pretty intense time for uh, yeah. Australia. And what's funny is I remember distinctly, it tells you where I was headspace-wise, because we were just we had finished uni, but we still had our graduation ceremony coming up, sort of in this time, uh, sort of like January 2020. COVID hadn't quite come into Australia yet. yet at this point or at least it was only just starting to I remember having those overt ideas when that was happening of like I would love to fly over there and just shoot this just capture this that's that's where my head was at now <laughs> now you couldn't get me out of my room unless you paid me <laughs> uh, I guess then either but you know I was uh, I was looking for that inspiration but someone else actually did go ahead and make a movie yeah. so you know we can pay them to, to watch their work exactly so you go a fire inside uh, in Riders of Justice, we see Mads Mikkelsen go on a violent John Wick-esque mission to avenge his wife's death. We saw the trailer for this. Looks, looks interesting. Looks interesting. Good yeah. to see Madsy back. I know. He's doing some stuff. Khan, uh, another round. Love it. Uh, the Alpinist follows 23-year-old Mark andre uh, Lecaro, uh or Lee, Lee Crick. I am butchering the name, but that LeCroy? is... Maybe. There's no... Uh, is there an X on the end? No, there is not. It's a C. It's a C at the yeah, end. Yeah, no clue. Uh, so he's a 23-year-old who embarks on some of the boldest sold ascends uh, with no cameras, no ropes, and no margin for error. 
Uh, so it's, oh, that's, it's a little too athletic for me, Zeke, but you know <laughs> what it is. Love is Love is Love consists of three interwoven stories about love, commitment, and loyalty. It is written and directed by Eleanor Coppola. Who do you reckon Eleanor Coppola is, Zeke? Uh, Sophia Coppola's daughter? No. It's her mother. Oh, wow. Francis's wife. Still, still kicking strong, making films. I love it. Uh, Persian Lessons sees a young Jewish man pretending to be an Iranian to avoid being executed in a concentration camp. That sounds like a fun, lighthearted film. Cool. See that? Uh, <laughs> it's a comedy, Zeke. Yeah. Uh, preparations to be together for an unknown period of time. That's the name. I'm not joking. Is a Hungarian film that sees a successful neurosurgeon abandoning her career to follow the love of her life to Budapest. However, upon reuniting with him, he claims to have never seen her before in his life. Oh, oh that is that's the sting right there. That's spicy. That's a bad Tinder date right there. And finally, at Luna this Sunday the 11th, you can catch, I guess, an interactive screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I believe there is a costume competition going on. So there you go. Win some cheeky rose tinting your world. Yeah. Now Zeke, mm. I've forgotten what film we're doing next week. You pitched me something and I forgot what it's called. Okay. So you're going to have to tell me. Okay. What are we watching next week? We're watching Nitrum. When he was a little boy, we used to play a game at the fabric shop in town. He'd go off and hide in all the big, tall rolls of fabric. And then I'd try and find it. He loved it. I loved it. But then there's one day I went to find him and he wasn't there. He lived everywhere. Not in the silks, not in the cottons. Ran into all the shops, strangers were stopping to help me. Tears streaming down my face. What did you do? I gave up and went back to the car. And there he was. Lying on the floor of the back seat, looking up at me, laughing. Laughing at my pain. Laughing like it was the funniest thing in the world. Living a life of isolation and frustration, a young man develops an unexpected friendship with the reclusive Ailis. When that relationship meets its tragic end, his loneliness and anger combulates into the most nihilistic and heinous of acts. Now, this is meant to be a Stan original. However, you can only catch this in cinemas right now. But um, I've heard nothing but good things, Zeke. Yeah, nothing it's a hefty film. Things. Yeah. Are we excited? <laughs> yeah, I'm honestly just trying to work out if I've pronounced it correctly. That's ah, it. yeah. Well, so. it's a, it's like tram, T-R-A-M. Yeah, because I've been pronouncing it as nitram or nitram. So it's nitram. But I think I think I'm wrong <laughs> based on other people's pronunciations of it. 
Um, so I'm not I will correct sure. it by next week if I've got it wrong. Exactly. We'll, we'll fix our mistakes in the future. In the critical, yeah. the critical review time. Exactly. That's when it's really important, Zeke. That's when it's so important. No one's watching our review or listening to our discussion of Lamb being like, you pronounced the other film's name wrong. Exactly. I'm pretty sure we didn't mispronounce Lamb. Is it Lamb? Lamb. Lamb. Well, on that Lamb-ber. note, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. Lamb. I mean, I mean, I, I was, I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Nitram.